This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Have you ever stopped to wonder what exactly success means to you? Is it money, fame, power, all of the above or none at all? I'm Darshan Johan and this is Redefining Success, a show where we speak to passionate people from various fields about their lives, what makes them tick and what the word success means to them. Joining me on the show today is criminal lawyer Go Chia Yi. Welcome to the show Chia Yi. Before we get into your idea of success, tell me a little bit about the work that you do. Hi Darshan, uh, it's a pleasure being here. So I think that um, many people have an idea about what criminal lawyers do based on the dramas that they watch maybe on Netflix how <laughs> to get away with murder and so on so uh, it's a bit like that but also not like that I think that the reality of it is it's not as sexy as somehow uh, the media portrays what I basically do is um, every day there's always somebody that's seeking for my help on something it may be someone who's uh, been arrested by the police someone who's been wrongfully accused or it may be someone who's uh, looking for help because something bad has happened to them so what I do basically is to assist these people in um, their everyday matters, uh, especially on the criminal aspect of things. Right. And why did you decide to become a lawyer? Well, actually, I don't think there was a particular reason for me deciding to become a lawyer. What happened was that, you know, I, I tend to be quite argumentative when I was young with my family and so on. So my mom was uh, suggesting to me that perhaps I should be a lawyer <laughs> at a point in time. My sister was a doctor. As she was planning to be a doctor, my cousins were doctors. Their wives were doctors. So when my my family asked me, "Do you want to be a doctor?" I said, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, "I mean, I get this whole Asian definition of success, but I don't think that applied to me." So I um, just went around a bit. But they brought me to a talk. I think there was a Taylor's Lakeside and so on. And there was this lecturer talking about the law, and I just thought that there was something I could do. Uh, I didn't really know exactly what I was getting into, <laughs> but the area of law that I wanted to get into only really came to me towards um, maybe the middle of my degree while I was in the UK. There was a period of time where I did some soul searching. I, I knew that I wanted to contribute to society, but I knew that I was not in the position to be able to do so. I, I liked the knowledge. I, I liked the skills. But I set a vision for myself, um, and I, I kind of envisioned that I would reach a position where I would at least be able to achieve that in some degree. And um, so several things happened that kind of radicalized me, as I would say. <laughs> so right. it made me um, open my eyes to certain things. And I got more in touch with human rights and, and movements and activism. And uh, from there, I just thought criminal law was a good fit for what I wanted to do. Because uh, a lot of people would tell me, you know, if you just did public interest litigation, you probably can't afford a living. So... I thought criminal law was the closest to that because um, I knew how bad the criminal justice system in Malaysia could be. And I knew that um, they need fresh ideas. They need a fresh perspective on things. And I thought maybe there was something that I could push. I, I haven't really started pushing on that too much, but that is the long-term goal I have in terms of um, my time in, in, in the legal profession and in the criminal uh, litigation area of practice. Right. Now, you mentioned some uh, something, uh, you know, it was rather funny, uh, you know, when you said that, uh, you know, how your everyone in your family were pretty much doctors. But, you know, you didn't see yourself as someone who fit the whole 
um, Asian stereotypical idea of success. So how would you define success? I mean, don't get me wrong. I think like <laughs> my relatives still think like being a lawyer is great. <laughs> so I still yeah, exactly. That, that definition. <laughs> I mean, like I also thought at one point I would be an ice cream seller and a police inspector, but uh, yeah, I am anyway. I'm just mm-hmm. lucky that it's aligned with what I'm passionate about, mm-hmm. that I actually feel passionate about uh, doing my work. And I think that is a, is a really good point in my life to be at. In terms of what I define success to be, I think on a personal basis, my definition, is, I think everybody's definition of success is quite subjective. Mm-hmm. What, what we view success for others tends to be quite objective, but we keep our own definition of success to be subjective. So let's say if I see somebody, even if like uh, I'm someone who doesn't really place too much uh, emphasis on monetary value or how much someone's pay is, but when I judge someone's success objectively, maybe maybe on more um, objective standard of like, oh, are they driving a Mercedes or are they driving this and that, then I probably deem this person to be successful. Right. But I think the reason is because we don't really know why this person's personal goals are. So maybe like I can't judge what success is to them. But for me, it's something that's constantly shifted over time. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I grow older and different points in my life, success can mean different things. Like when I was doing UPSR, that could mean like five A's mm-hmm. or like PMR, like seven A's. So like that constantly shifted for me at this point in my life. Um, I didn't really know the answers or the keys to life, but I think that success is something that is built on several pillars. Several right. pillars in my life that's important to me. So the first would be my career. The second would be activism. And the third would be on a personal level. So the, <laughs> I said those not in any like preferential basis, like which comes first. But I think those three pillars are important. Uh, and once I feel that I fulfilled or I built that pillar strong enough for these three aspects that I could say I'm closer to my definition of success. Ultimately, I believe the ultimate purpose of striving for success is long-term happiness. And if it doesn't achieve that goal, then I think that you know either I or someone has to pivot what their definition is uh, towards something that maybe more aligned with what can bring the happiness in life. Right. Now, I'm also um, curious, you know, uh, curious as to, you know, what radicalized you? Because you said that, you know, went through a period of soul searching and you reached a point where you were, you were trying to figure out how you can give back to society, how you can contribute back to society. What drove you to that point where you felt the need to contribute back to society? I grew up in Subang, USJ4. So my school was five minutes away from me, primary school. And then my secondary school was just next to that. And then my college was in Subang. So my whole life was in Subang Jaya. So I grew up in a, in a place where <laughs> I was pretty much in the Subang bubble. Right. What was it? Bangsa bubble. <laughs> so I could relate to friends I have now, right? I'm 27 now. The friends now that um, I think the boss asked them once, what is the billion dollar wheel? And they said they didn't know. So <laughs> I could kind of relate to that because they grew up in a bubble which they weren't really encouraged to explore that. Yep. Nor like anybody around them were talking to them about that. So I was when I was younger, I was in a point in my life where I wanted to do something good, but I didn't necessarily have people around me to enable me to achieve that or people that I could share those uh, uh, values with. So um, in the UK... Um, one night I was like, I was just thinking like, I want to do something, but I don't know what that is. But somebody reached out to me, a friend of mine, um, 
Cassandra. So she asked if I wanted to join this internship program, a human rights internship program. So I thought, okay, why not? I'll just join it. Um, I didn't know back then like what these firms were, these places were. I really didn't know anything about it. But I just decided to take that leap of faith. And mm-hmm. I think that was the moment that started me getting involved with all this and, and realizing that it was, this was something that was possible. And um, what actually really pushed me even further was, um, I think there was a period of time during my second year in law school that uh, my, the same friend of mine, Cassandra, decided to lobby for like the removal of the prime minister's portrait from my uni- university. Right. It caused a whole big scandal. And at the time I was the president. So like then I got pulled into the, into the scandal. So <laughs> at, at the point in time, it's like, I always hear maybe from my uncle or aunties or someone down the street that, oh, the government is like, they is a dad or they do all these dirty things. Mm-hmm. And I just never really thought that that was true. I mean, I, that was like hearsay to me, but when I experienced it myself and everything that I experienced and knowing that there was that form of injustice that existed, I think that kind of, pushed me along the path that I, I, I am today. So um, it was a, it was a <laughs> different set of circumstances. And then I did a stint in Malaysia Kini two months. I, I think that really informed me. Um, that got me into like the, the whole political movement and everything. Right. In Asia. So it's just a bunch of things that, that worked out. Uh, but I, I always had that sense of justice since I was young for various reasons that um, has continued even to my adulthood. So I think that that... Sometimes I, people always say like, oh, choose your calling, right? Right. But I think that the calling chooses you. And like, I don't think you can really ignore it. It's there. So if you ignore it, you just can't sleep sometimes. So I think that's what pushes me. And that's what radicalized me. Now, there is a misconception, um, Chiai, when it, you know, that sometimes people have about criminal lawyers. I'm sure you've heard it before, maybe from some uh, uncles and aunties or, you know, your, some of your mutual friends and things like that. You know, they always ask, you're going to be defending all the bad guys like serial killers and rapists and robbers. How do you sleep at night? Talk to me about this and, and what's the reality of being a criminal lawyer? Well, I mean, I can understand their perspective. Mm-hmm. From a moral perspective, people often say, like, why are you siding with people that um, have committed wrongdoing? But I think we need to take a step back on, on that and perhaps look at the bigger situation. There are people who might not have committed the wrongdoing, the people who are accused of doing it. And I, um, a lot of people might not be able to grasp the abstract concept of the legal system and the nuances that come with it. But the reason why it's important to have legal representation for people that... Um, are even suspected of doing this or in this stuff is because we don't want um, you, if let's say, for example, if you in, you are in that position for your rights, for you not to have the right to be heard, especially when you're innocent. So the whole system depends on um, the presumption of innocence and the existence of lawyers is to ensure that the due process is followed. And often what I find is that um, the system is very punishing. Even if you haven't done the crime or even if you haven't been convicted, you're going for your trial, you've just been arrested. Uh, sometimes going through the process itself is punishment enough. So, um, and you realize that a lot of people who are involved in these criminal offenses, maybe people that come from very uh, bad backgrounds, poor backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So you can't, there's a part of you that may be thinking then like, oh, to what extent are they responsible for the offenses they've committed. I mean, yes, there's, there's culpability, there's 
menswear, but there's also the social factor that people tend to ignore. So some of us are privileged enough to not ever have someone we know be in that situation. But when it's your family member, I think that it's never black and white. Uh, things are never black and white, they're grey. And when you've seen the whole injustice of the system, I think that's something you can't ignore. And every time, I think that uh, there are a lot of cases where I've seen acquittals and, and to see the family's reaction and, and to see everybody's reaction, sometimes it feels like it's the right thing. Because um, let's say, for example, a drug trafficking offense, you're under your mind for two years. Um, sometimes you're just like, um, you're just your friend, you're just with your friend in the car and the drugs are found in the car, but you're arrested and you're charged and that goes two years of your life and you have nothing to do with that. Right. So I think people tend to overlook how punishing the system is. People tend to overlook uh, the complexity of the moral areas surrounding it. And I think the reality of being a criminal lawyer is it's not as sexy. You know, it's not like the ace attorney game where you stand up, shout <laughs> protection, right? It's, it's a lot of uh, mental and emotional fortitude you need to have. I think I sleep less knowing that I didn't do a good job than sleeping less because I represent them. In any event, like I think you attract the kind of clients that you put out there, meaning like the way you portray yourself attracts a certain kind of energy. I, that's what I believe. And so far, I mean, like my clients and so on, they, they, they go along with, it, with that energy, you know? Um, whereas I won't deny that there are lawyers out there who may be <laughs> doing more than they need to, but um, I think who you want to be as a lawyer so really depends on, on you and how you are the one that can have control over that. Do you think that our criminal justice system is classist? Definitely. I, I would say that it is because um, we've often heard news about the double standards that exist. So someone who is of a more privileged position may be treated better by the courts than somebody that... Um, is from a poor background. I'm not saying that this is conscious or this is like intended, but sometimes the system itself is built in such a way that it causes the double standard to exist. So I think that the system itself needs to be uh, needs to be adjusted so that this can be avoided. On the show with me today is Go Chia Yi, criminal lawyer. After the break, I ask him about the difference in mindset between older lawyers and younger lawyers. Keep it here on Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Redefining Success. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me today is Go Chia Yi, criminal lawyer. So Chai, you, you talked about how even as a young, when you were growing up, you had this sense of justice in you. What, uh, how were you, Chai, during your schooling days? Did you get good grades? What were your interests and ambitions back then? Yeah, I mean, I was a prefect. <laughs> <laughs> so I got good grades. Right. I was in top class. Um, I was in front class. <laughs> so I was that kind of uh, student. But at the same time, being good, then um, <laughs> I another friend of mine is also a top student. But towards our last year, we would uh, actually skip class a bit. <laughs> but the, the teachers wouldn't suspect anything because we were really good. But my interests and ambitions back then were pretty much like computer games, reading, drawing, anything to distract myself uh, from the world. I was pretty much like a nerd and, and so on, but I'm actually quite different than I was back then. Mm. Uh, very, very different. 
And I'm thankful for that in a way. I always, some people look back on their past self and then they long for that. Like they feel like, oh, I've lost that part of me. Whereas for me so far, I've always looked at myself in the past and feel like I'm grateful for who I am now. So um, I, I'm really, I, yeah, I was really different when I was younger. And I just think that I've constantly strived for that self-improvement to be better every day, to be a better person, to be a better lawyer. But uh, the sense of justice came from uh, personal reasons. <laughs> right. But um, in the end of the day, that has made me who I am and that has pushed me to do what, what I, I do. So in a way, you're grateful for that. But at the same time, maybe you could have been better without it. But, <laughs> right. but it is what it is. You, you mentioned justice, right? There's also one aspect um, that you get involved in which is like, you know, working with, for example, protesters who attend protests. Talk to me about that aspect of the job that you do. That's more on a pro bono, pro bono basis for me. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get into, uh, managed to get into that circle, you know, um, I think about last year, so on, during the Laoan protests and, and all that. So people reached out to us to help and oversee the process. So there are a lot of people in the bar that, uh, there's some people in the bar, the main figures that will always be uh, coordinating this, organizing this. So we managed to work with them. And um, I think that it's interesting to note that these people are all very passionate about doing this sort of work. And it requires that kind of passion because um, let's say, for example, if someone is arrested and you have to be there, it may take up a few hours of your day on a weekend or on a weekday. But um, for me, those cases... Uh, like the easy mode <laughs> right. I, I don't want to to, to brag mm-hmm. but it's more like I've seen a lot of followers instances so mm-hmm. but what I find difficult sometimes um, is that I may have this disconnect as in like I because I've seen all the things that you could see um, and yeah I have yet more more to see but I've seen very terrible things but so like when um, I understand protesters, protesters uh, that go through this on the first occasion, they may feel like really scared and so on. <laughs> but I find a struggle sometimes because I don't feel that fear anymore. But um, so what I try to do is try to assure them that everything will be okay. Uh, because I know for a fact that um, they're on the better end of things and that it will be okay. Um, and that things aren't as bad as, as they think at the moment. So I think one thing that I, I tend to bring to that table also is my uh, ability to give that assurance and the ability to, to connect and understand what they're going through at the moment. So I think a whole lot of this requires empathy, you know. Um, I think that what sets you apart from being a decent lawyer and all is whether you can empathize with someone and their struggles. And the core part of that will be important in your legal work, especially for someone that's going through a process that can seem quite punishing for them. Right. How do you choose which, uh, what kind of work you give, uh, you do pro bono and, and what kind of clients you charge? So because I solely do criminal law, so mm-hmm. I work on criminal law, I, I would definitely prefer to charge a certain fee for those that can afford it. Right. Um, but there are instances where I just know for a fact that I could do something for this person and I would do it. So... Sometimes the higher paying clients uh, may be the ones paying for the lower or the non-paying client. Right. So there's always this balance. And I think that um, we have to help people when we can. I'm not saying we have to do it all the time. 
but in, in our line of work, there are always people needing help. And so even extending a hand to someone at a random time maybe make all the difference in their life. So for example, like recently, so I mean, I don't have to do it, but I managed to help this old man and, you know, get him out on bail and so on. Um, he's been inside for like seven, eight months. And I just thought that if he was inside longer, I'm not sure if he will make it. So I had to just try and we managed to get him out and, and so on. And now that I, I met him again, it's like he's a different person. So, right. you know, he, he, yeah, he's much more healthier and so on. So I, a part of me is thinking like, because sometimes if you get them out on bail, then, you know, when it comes to their cases and they plead guilty, then um, the time they have in custody won't be considered anymore. So it could be a, a difficult thing. But in this instance, I just don't know if he was going to make it another month or so on. So, but I think that, when you see the effect of what you do, you you just feel, sometimes I feel like the $1 lawyer, you know, that show <laughs> Disney Plus yeah. is like this guy that just go around and help people. And like, I'm not trying to say I'm like the guy, but it just feels like a part of that is pretty much quite accurate to to the work that I do. That's wonderful to hear. Um, Jay, what are some of the biggest challenges you faced in your career so far? When I first started, it uh, was a lot of anxiety and on things. I, many people might not know it or might not see it that way, but, uh, when I was younger, I had a lot of anxiety and a lot of stuff. Like I couldn't even order food. <laughs> right. You no, know, I, I, when I cut my hair, I get really nervous. Mm -hmm. I couldn't really answer the call. I couldn't really do a lot of things, but some things that I could do really well, but some things that really crippled me for various reasons, which I don't think I can disclose now, but, um, they get, uh, the circumstances in my life provided this sort of anxiety to me right. a lot of things that um, I've managed to overcome over time. Mm. So I think that became a hurdle to my career. But um, I think just constantly doing and pushing yourself. Now, you know, it's second nature to me. You know, I don't have any of this fear anymore. So I like to explore what I'm afraid of and, and try to push past that boundary. And I think this is something that a lot of young lawyers face as well. Maybe not in the same vein that I did, but they have a lot of anxiety a lot of stress and anxiety about the situation. But I think that our anxiety sometimes is self-fulfilling because we are afraid we do things that enable what we are afraid of to exist. So I think that once a lot of people recognize that and just conquer that fear and to know that open communication, trust and confidence is key, then I think that um, they'll be closer towards their, their definition of success. Right. Now, you regularly speak up on, on issues faced by young lawyers. Um, one of the things you tend to speak up on is, you know, about the, the, the differences in, in opinion between um, quote-unquote boomers and, and younger lawyers when it comes to, let's say, the pay in the industry or the pay gap um, in the industry, um, how younger lawyers are treated. Tell me a little bit more about this um, um the mindset difference between some older members of the fraternity compared to to the younger lawyers the different challenges that are being faced and, and what are you trying to push for um change in this regard so like i said core part of me it's always been that justice right mm -hmm. so when this all started when i started getting my feet into this whole all lawyers versus young lawyers. I mean, that's, that isn't how I frame the narrative. Right. But it has come to that. 
But the reason why was because somebody suggested, oh, people should be given loans rather than pay. So I just thought that was really absurd. But at the same time, while everyone was complaining about it, I just felt that we needed to do something about it. You know, I heard so much stories about this. All my peers would complain left and right about how they're upset about something, but we're not doing anything about it. So I just thought, okay, I'll just start a petition. The petition just asked for minimum pay for pupils. It's the most basic thing to me. I don't right. see why you can't implement that. And then I looked, typed out the long post, basically just criticizing the bar council and so on and, and the elections and the farcical nature of it. And then I posted in the group. And as expected, you know, everybody really, uh, I was everybody's favorite lawyer that day in that group. <laughs> and so, but when I did that, when I, I do get anxiety like about these things, you know, like right. I mentioned, I have anxiety, but when I post about these things, like people say like you, oh, we love doing that, but it gives me anxiety. But when I do it, I just do it because I feel like I have to, and I do it and I get all these hate comments. Uh, but at the same time, because I did that, I managed to connect with uh, a friend of mine, Vince Tan, another friend, Nicholas Wong, and we just decided to recruit people on board and just get mm -hmm. them on board and discuss about this matter and, it turns out the people that we had on board were people who had other issues that they felt passionate about. You know, they were victims of something else. And so we, it just became something quite organic. Uh, it wasn't something planned. We had this petition and then we wanted to hand it, it, hand it over to the Malaysian bar. And then I went there and I was surprised because we sent invites, but we didn't expect to have like, you know, Malaysia Kini on all the media over there. Right. But then it came there, it was uh, Cameron. <laughs> so... <laughs> People think that, oh, you know what, this was the my, my starting point of my activism. Actually not, you know, I, I've been trying to push things when I was a student. So I had a lot of like training on this kind of things. That's why I people might underestimate us, uh, but we had training in different forms. So that when we come to these moments, that's when we actually show what we're capable of. So that's why we rose to the occasion and we just pushed it. But in terms of that, that whole senior lawyer versus junior lawyer dispute, uh, some senior lawyers are supportive. The whole problem, the whole crux of it comes down to how they think we're doing it. They think that we're doing it in a way that doesn't match what they think, how they think it should be done. They think it should be raised internally, that we should talk to the relevant persons in, in authority and raise it to them rather than raise the issue to the media or to the public. But <laughs> I, I've had experience and I know like that in order for us to push anything we need the public to know and we need them to feel the pressure so while I appreciate the argument on, on us forwarding our arguments internally I think that there has to be people that play both roles so people inside and people outside and if we have to be the bad guys on these occasions then we're willing to play that role but it's equally important for the public to know or understand what we're going through. And I think that that comes down to it, really. The, the senior lawyers see what we're doing as, as something that's really untraditional and unbecoming of a lawyer. But it's so funny. They, they would criticize us about having a press conference at the EGM, the Extraordinary General Meeting. But then a few weeks later, they would go out and do a walk for, for independence right. of the judiciary. So they say that we draw attention away from the issue. But they're going to get attention regardless. They were referred to during the application to recuse Tengku Maimo and like for all their efforts. I, I don't know if that was intended, but that happened. So all we wanted was to just highlight the issue within your own profession that you've you've not given the day of life. 
So it's a bit frustrating because I know it can be done. And I know the resistance to doing it is because, you know, they're trying to look out for their friends or, or their other members of the bar if you can't stand on their own two feet. But if you look out for those people, what about those juniors? Like, it has to be a balance, right? Right. So the juniors have to be looked out after as well. And I think that there's this always this whole assumption about what the free market is, you know, the invisible hand. It's a lot of like economic theory going around by lawyers. <laughs> Frankly, should maybe keep to the profession rather than try and get into other areas or other industries such as economics. But this, they have a lack of understanding of that and they perpetuate that economic argument again and again. Like for example, or saying that um, a minimum form of pay for pupils will uh, discourage competition. I really think that that is a really dumb argument. No disrespect, but they will something will exist to be a hurdle for what we want to implement. And right now we're at the standstill waiting for it to be implemented. But what people don't understand and they may think that we're causing noise for no reason, if we manage to pass a motion... When I say we, I'm, you know, uh, I hope no one out there is listening to this and disputing about it with their friends. But we managed to pass this this motion, which requires the Malaysian bar to implement minimum pay. Okay, good, good news, happy story, happy ending, right? But I know how these things go. They will just pass some guideline that it's not going to be binding on anybody. So what's the point of us having a guideline when what we want is something that can be enforced? Uh, this that's why this year we found another motion so that we can put in a ruling first, just just put in the ruling and then go to court and settle it. I mean, we are lawyers, right? So there's a lot of frustration because there's a lot of uh, condescension and misunderstanding there when um, I think if they spoke to us, spoke to whoever's passionate or interested about this issue, they'll understand that we actually have very valid points on this. So um, that's where we are right now in terms of that discourse. Right. But there are also senior lawyers that are in support of us. So I think the problem also is not just the boomers versus the Gen Zs. It's sometimes it's the, hard to say so, but it's the Gen X and millennials that are the problem. You know, those mm-hmm. that are just five years older than me or six years older than me. Right. Uh, sometimes I'm within that generation itself. It's just, they start to perpetuate what they've learned when they were juniors because they never had maybe a good example of leadership. They've grew up in a family where they would, um, adopt the leadership style, which many would call the tiger mom or tiger dad, or Asian parenting. But parenting is different from leadership. And we don't need parents in our workplace. We need leaders. And I think that there is no training in terms of management, no training in terms of how to be a good employer. And I think this is essential. I think that the kind of training they have in other companies or MNCs should be adopted here in the profession. People should learn how to manage people. Because the value of these lawyers are on their skills, not as not as a manager, and they they constantly be rewarded for their skills into higher management positions, but they are not given the management training to justify the positions they hold. So what we have now is um it's just a real mess when it comes to that. You know what would you say like especially if there are younger listeners listening in. Um, who want to tread down this path, right? Who want to become lawyers one day. What would you say are the key qualities required to sustain a career as a lawyer in Malaysia? Well, if your focus is simply, or if your core goal is to have family and to live a comfortable life, then I would say um, just focus on 
doing the work that is required to be passionate, to be resourceful, and to stand by your opinions. And don't be afraid. Don't be. Don't let your anxiety get in the way. Let's say, for example, there are a lot of young lawyers like this. Like they want to ask for leave. You know, then they don't. They get anxious about asking for it. I mean, for a lot of other people in other industries, this is basic. You just ask for it, right? You go through HR, but for young lawyers, they they so afraid to even ask for leave mm-hmm. that like um they will wait until like one week before and ask. Then they don't get it. It's it's there a lot of, a lot of anxiety there. They they feel very anxious when it comes to their superiors. So I would encourage young lawyers to be more communicative with their superiors. The the main concern for associates or lawyers is not their concern is whether the work can get done. So you should be communicating with them. You communicate with them when you can deliver this uh, particular work, when you can come in, what you're working on, what you're up to task with, what you can cope with, what you can't. So uh, this is what they have to do. But at the same time, on the employer side, they have to be more receptive. They have to lead. They have to manage. They have to distribute the workload evenly. So I think both sides have to play a role in that. But in terms of just for the junior lawyers, uh, besides whatever I've said, I think that um, having a passion for at least you need to have knowledge about public, about like our politics, about our country and so on. I think that's at least basic. So that makes you a better lawyer because when you network with other clients and so on, you need to have the knowledge. But a lot of young lawyers think they can work in these silos where they just focus on the work. Don't just focus on the work. Do other things as well. Go, go to other events, learn about other sides of the law, learn about uh, how you can contribute as a lawyer because those things I believe can be quite fulfilling. And if you just focus on your work, you may find yourself burnt out and wishing that, uh, seeing no value in this profession. So, I mean, uh, that is perhaps some of the things that I can say to the to younger listeners out there. Now, circling back to your definition of success, you said that it hinges on sort of three pillars, career, um, your activism, and also personal. Um, how do you measure growth? For career, I have career goals that are pretty standard. So um, they are, they're not so surprising. It's goals like, oh, let's say, for example, by the end of next year, I'd like to achieve this amount. Or like, I'd like to um, have an office at this space. Or I'd like to have a staff here and, and so on. That's for me as a sole proprietor. Right. Somebody owns my firm. But for somebody else, maybe their own career goals would be, i like to give uh, this amount of talks uh, by this period of time. So this, those goals may be set by their firm or maybe set by themselves. Those goals are kind of boring to me. So for me, like my success, like I said, hinges on these um, three pillars. So career is one of it, but activism is another one. So right. for me, that how do I measure growth in that? Also, it really, I would then set different goals for that. So every single pillar is a different goal, right? And, and my own vision of how I'm growing in that. So for activism is my involvement, what I'm pushing, the effect and impact of what I'm doing. Um, so that is one way I measure that. And in terms of personal, I'm always constantly evaluating myself and trying to be better uh, than I was the day before. So I'm always trying to push my boundaries and see um, how I can be better. But it's all pretty subjective. But in, in a general point of view, that's how I measure my growth towards my definition of success. Right. Before we wrap this conversation up, Chai, one last question for you. What does it feel like doing something that you love? It feels great. It feels motivating and uh, it feels as if you're at peace. So you no longer have a part of yourself that is in conflict with whatever you're doing or when you wake up in the morning, 
to me that anxiety is gone because it's replaced with this excitement to maybe go out there and prove yourself and prove to the world. So it's no longer a situation where you're working so hard for someone else's dream. That 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 is what it feels like. Sometimes it feels like we're dedicating so many hours, and then when you think back about it, it's you realize that those hours goes to someone else's dreams and someone right. else's pocket. But I, that is necessary to some degree. I think we need to be passionate about anything in order for us to succeed. We need to show the the ability to be passionate about something we shouldn't. But um, it's all the same about. It's like going to a, like Muhammad Ali going to a fight, right? Like. <laughs> You know, he goes to the ring, he performs, everybody's cheering, you know, he goes to the press conference, he's doing this and that, and everybody is saying, oh, Muhammad Ali is the best, he's the greatest. But you need to recognize that he would run 10 miles a day, or he would do all these sorts of boring, uh, you know, training. Right. He would do, he might have hated that training, but he became great because he knew that he had to put passion in things that he didn't, he wasn't passionate about. So this applies to, to things you need to do. Sometimes we have ideas, and I think the key difference is that I, I'm a risk taker and I'll just go ahead with the idea even if I would fail and fall flat on my face. So I think there needs to be more of that. Like, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to to try. And I think the power of an individual is is really underrated. And I've always embodied that, that value. I've tried to show the people that just one person that speaks out, just one person that says something or does something can cause a whole difference to um, a lot of people. And may not change the tide, but it may be a drop in the ocean of change. So I think that when you realize that even the small things you do and people come back to you and say thank you and that meant a lot to me and, and, and so on, even if you think that it doesn't matter, it does. It, it, it has impact that's hard to measure. Impact you can't measure sometimes in money. Impact you can only measure in your memories and, and your, on, in the emotions that you invoke in others. So uh, I'm not sure if I've deviated from the question. Thank you. And on that note, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Ashwin. That was Go Chiai, criminal lawyer. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.